This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I am a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so incredibly honored to have Paula Fesler, Senior Vice President, Chief Nurse Executive at Westchester Medical Center in New York. Welcome, Paula. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, Paula, once again, uh, like Skip said, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do at Westchester and, and also you know, this this podcast is about performance improvement and, and, and connecting the dots. And tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, Dr. Lancaster and I are, are, are very fairly early in our, our performance improvement journey. And and as we like to say, we most of us didn't go into I didn't become a physician to go into performance improvement. And, and most nurses don't do that. And most advanced practice uh, practitioners either tell tell us a little bit about your story and how sure. you ended well, up where I, you are absolutely i have to say i love the the title connecting the dots uh i would say my career has has been one of connecting lots of different dots and it's not a linear career path at all um i started as a nurse over 25 years ago and pretty quickly went to nurse practitioner school um graduated with my master's from duke over 20 years ago um, really loved patient care. I loved being able to impact people on their health journey and uh, never really saw myself in any sort of a leadership role. But as time went on, I was actually tapped to become a leader for the advanced practice providers in the emergency department in upstate New York. Um, I was intrigued. I really, I was always one of those employees that would come to every meeting. I was already through a lean leadership training because I was fascinated with some of the projects we were working on in the emergency department. Um, it's a great environment to work on improvement. The queue at the, at the triage desk, if you've ever worked out in triage, is something that's uh, quite fascinating. And no one comes to the emergency department to wait in the waiting room. So I've always loved those kind of topics. And I just sort of fell into this leadership opportunity, really enjoyed it. Uh, loved the work that we did when I was upstate. I helped open up a couple of urgent cares and a freestanding emergency department. And at that point, I felt like uh, I, was, I was loving what I was doing, but didn't have all the tools I needed. I went back for a master's in business so that I could better understand what we were doing and be able to use, um, broaden my terminology and the tools in my toolbox, so to speak. And after that, I, I uh, had a great opportunity to go work with Northwell Health out in Long Island as vice president of the emergency medicine service line. And from there, um, I had another great opportunity to actually step out of an advanced practice role and leadership from that perspective back into the nursing world. And uh, I've been chief nurse executive at Westchester Health for the last almost two and a half years and really enjoying the, the journey. And all of those skills that I learned along the way are used uh, each and every day as we continue our journey to improve how we do patient care. And this last year was probably the most challenging and yet most rewarding one of my entire life. Yeah, it's, it has been, and it's so interesting that uh, how many of the providers that we've had on the show have been in the emergency department. It seems like that's a, you know, Dr. Eric Dixon, uh, Dr. Martin Lucenti, and you, it seems like the, the ER or the ED 
uh, I still like to call it the ER, but the, the ED is is a good place for those uh, quick, you know, performance improvement projects. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for that that background and intro. You you've definitely done many things over over your career. One of the things I was I was looking at when I was researching you for this interview is uh, that you really work a lot with employee talent development and trying to support uh, your team um, at all levels to, so that they can you know be as successful as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about? What sort of things you do from that uh, kind of talent development standpoint? Absolutely. So, so talent development, it's in my mind, it's two things that we're looking at. It's, it's developing the current staff that we have, um, whether it's new staff coming on and how you onboard them and, and their curriculum. So currently we are working on where 10 hospital uh, campus health system. And one of our greatest opportunities right now is how do we standardize across all of our campuses? So we're currently working across the campuses, collecting all of our information as far as how each of the different hospitals does, does onboarding for our nursing staff, what the competencies are in each of the different areas. And uh, our goal will be to standardize that actually as quickly as possible so that it's very predictable and files are uh, look the same no matter which hospital you're in unless uh, there's a skill set that isn't needed. So one of our main campuses, we're a level one trauma center for peds and adults. Obviously, those competencies for nurses in that ED will be a little different than in our other EDs, but otherwise the basics will all be the same. So we've, we've got that perspective, but the other piece I think for development is how do you bring in the right people to lead and, uh, and also to, to work at the bedside. So I work very closely with our HR recruitment as well um, to look at that talent pipeline and, and what we have as far as opportunities ahead of us. Yeah, I mean, this last year was very, very tough for, I think, everybody around the country as far as nursing staffing. And so it, are some of those uh, projects and plans that you have in place kind of related to um, uh, as a strategy to try to help with that? Absolutely. When we were first getting ready for the surge back at the end of January and February, we actually um, took a very early opportunity to cross-train nurses who hadn't been bedside nurses for a while. Um, we naturally started to see a decrease in our periop scheduling and, and our OR cases. So we started taking our OR nurses. We didn't furlough any employee, not one during the event, uh, which for us lasted for several months. And we actually relocated after we cross-trained um, probably well over 80 periop nurses to help support our front line. We almost doubled our number of ICU beds. We took our um, step-down nurses and had them cross-trained to um, increase their competencies to help take care of ICU. We brought our cath lab staff and our IR nurses. They actually came back in to help work at the bedside as ICU nurses. And it is without any doubt in my mind, the only way we got through that is was through the, the uh, cross collaboration and the training. And then we even used other nurses who weren't um, comfortable being independent in care. We did team nursing. So I may have my competent ICU nurse taking care of a couple of patients, and she had a support nurse outside that would be running supplies, doing documentation, and they really worked as a team. And certainly with donning and doffing and taking care of this patient population, if you had someone that could support you when you were in the room, it helped us be much more efficient in that care delivery as well. That, you know, those scenarios, that just really reminds me of how bad it was for your region, you know, back in March and April last year. I think most of us have really forgotten that. 
And, you know, we went through our own kind of tough stretch, especially in December, January, but I don't think we were ever as crunched as you just kind of made, made it seem like it was going on there. Can you give us just a little example of, of how thinly stretched you were during that period of time? So we have, uh, I think we're licensed for about 73 ICU beds and at our heaviest, we almost doubled that. I think we were at 71 additional ICU patients. We turned oh. our ambulatory surgical building, which thankfully is connected to our hospital. It opened about a year and a half ago. Um, we turned all, seven, uh, all 36 um, pre and post-op spaces there into our clean ICU. We moved every clean ICU patient out over there and we did different pods. We had our SICU, our TICU, um, our CCU and CTICU shared a pod, our MICU shared a pod, and our neuro ICU had a pod. And so we, we would infiltrate and we'd, we'd, we'd mix our staffing so that we made sure we had competent nurses to take care of the population and every other ICU bed in the rest of the hospital, um, except for our neonatal ICU and our PICU were all COVID positive during our surge. Well, yeah, we, we were never, we were never quite that bad. And, and our big surge here at DeSoto happened around the 1st of, of this year. And uh, we had a similar experience where we, we took a lot of our, our non clinical nurses, you know, quality nurses, uh, infection prevention nurses, and we pulled them back online. Uh, and, and I think a lot of them really, really enjoyed it, you know, uh, uh, being able to get back at the bedside, but we really did. We relied on them. You you talked about uh, standardizing things across across your hospital system. Tell us a little bit about how you guys apply standard work at at the at the bedside. And 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 I think that I'd like you to talk about that because I think that we physicians we have been very very hesitant. And have given a lot of pushback against against standard work. You know, we call it cookbook medicine. But, and I think that that we have that that the the frontline nurses are they're way ahead of us as far as as standard work when it comes to you know central line dressing changes and inserting a foley and doing bedside shift reports and and whatnot. Tell tell us a little bit about that. So absolutely, I think um, nursing loves our policies, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so that that helps that helps a bit, and um, I, I would say the the other issue that we dealt with over this past year is we actually changed to a brand new EMR in October. So um, and it was a, we did a second surge uh, starting in November December that is just uh, I'm happy to report really winding down, which is lovely. But um, I think. Even though we've done a lot with standardizing, I actually think we saw lots of opportunity through this past year with our two COVID surges and then changing to a whole new EMR that um, it really challenges your workflow. It challenges how you looked at things before. And, and as you peel those layers back, we, we actually think, we, I think we have a lot of additional opportunity, which is why we're really digging in with the, uh, with the education and standardization. No, that, that's a good point. I've helped implement several MRs uh, over the last few years, and I just want to know, I mean, what was more stressful, March and April of last year or October, November with implementing the EMR? <laughs> um, oh, that might not be fair. Very different, very, very different. Um, with COVID, you didn't have time to think too much. Yeah. It seemed like almost every Friday we were opening up a new area that was for COVID-positive patients that, that uh, it was it was 
very deliberate. It really mandated incredible communication, probably at a level we've never done at our organization before, um, because you couldn't do it alone. It was, it was an amazing collaboration between facilities and pharmacy. As we moved ICUs, we had to bring in new Pixis machines and the right drugs and the right supplies. And within 12 hours or less, we could open another unit. Our worst Sunday, I think we had 16 patients intubated in a 12 hour period uh, that weren't planned intubation. Um, so, so that was that was in and of itself just an amazing feat. I think the length of time COVID lasted was challenging. Um, if you flip and think about our EMR transition, uh, we originally were gonna transition in June. It was pushed back until October, which was a really great thing. And I think the big surprise that I have from that is we all knew the first few weeks would be really tough. Um, we planned for it, we overstaffed, we were, you know, that, that piece and the night we went live, we were all there and almost three days straight making sure that the transition went well and everyone was safe. And that planning was, was I think, very well done. You know, that, that overall, I'm really pleased with how that happened. What I didn't expect was how long it was gonna take for us to get to where we felt um, improved confidence in the system. And we are still, I would say at the very beginning, almost yeah. seven months in at our optimization. I, I was about to say, if y'all are already at the point where you're comfortable with the system, man, y'all y'all move quickly. Yeah. It usually takes a few years. How, how, far, yeah. how many years are we in, Jake? Oh, for, for I mean, you know, I just joined Baptist about a year and a half ago. So y'all had been on Epic for a long period of time, but, um, you know, I think it, it had been since like 2012, at, at least, at least in some places. So, you know, and luckily nobody ever sends me any change requests or anything new that they want to see done in Epic, you know, at this point, just get, well, I, I, I assume that, that, uh, that you guys had already plan had this big go live date and then epic came and y'all just said what the heck we're gonna we're gonna push 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 on I, I would imagine that a lot of a lot of organizations would have said okay no 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 this this isn't the right time but but you guys went ahead that, that's that's sure, amazing so, well we, we we had some hard stops we had a system that was not going to be supported anymore yeah. so we did have to have it changed by the end of the year um, we did push back by about four months. And the main reason we pushed back, we actually uh, put in Cerner. And, um, you know, New York State closed to, to non-essential workers. So to have on-site support, we moved everything to be remote and or as much as we could to do remote. So it was it was uh, a lesson where we kind of put our boots on the boots on the ground as we kept running to see what we needed to do to meet our needs. It works. It works very well. But uh, I think we have a a long road of optimization still ahead of us. We're, we're working on it. Yeah, continuous improvement forever with the EMR. That's what's coming your way. <laughs> so I shouldn't believe you when you said you never get any requests any longer? Uh, that was heavy sarcasm, if you knew me. <laughs> heavy sarcasm. <laughs> that's the reason that you know places have a chief medical information officer. is <laughs> because that's, that work never stops. Um, oh, yeah, I, I feel so... Uh, I don't want to say sorry, but I, you know, I do feel sorry for Jake because on every call that we're on, he's always, <laughs> he's always taking the heat, heat about the, about the EMR for something. Well, because Paul, it's his fault. I'm good target practice. So Paul, let me ask you, let me ask sorry. you a question real quick, if I can. Uh, one of the things that a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Matt Pollard at Intermountain Health talks about a lot is that, um, 
we absolutely must find a way to get providers involved in performance improvement work uh, and that it can become a real obstacle. How has your organization, what's went well or, or maybe what hasn't went well? How, how do you think about getting providers involved in the actual work that needs to be improved? Um, I can still remember the first time I was invited to a lean event as a nurse practitioner, and I think it was scheduled for eight hours. And I'm like, it was on how to move a, a patient from the ED up to our observation unit, which was still part of the ED one floor up. And I remember thinking, how can this take eight hours until I sat through it? And I was, we, we ran over, I think we went almost 10. Um, I was so amazed when I sat through the process about all the different parts you just don't even think about, you know, from environmental service and all those other pieces that you just kind of take for granted that happen. Um, in addition, I think the communication pieces, so many things in our workflow in healthcare, it's very linear. And when things are linear, your time just continues to add up and whenever you're trying to get something done. So I think the, the most important thing is how can you show value to the provider and the time they spend up front to look at that process will give them a much more significant return on the back end. But sometimes I think that's hard to see. And, uh, and until you really get that glimpse, I think it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not intuitive. It doesn't make sense that that little bit of time up front is gonna really have such a big payoff on the back end. You, talk about, you talked about uh, helping set up a, um, a freestanding ER. Tell us a little bit about that. How 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 was that experience? Because I don't know where we are in the process, Jake. But but there's been talk about us opening up our own freestanding ER. Uh, it was very exciting. A little scary. It was a hospital that had closed. Um, that that my uh, hospital that I was working with was um, going to open up as as some outpatient area in a freestanding ED. One of the first things that we implemented was to actually have EMS on site. So if anyone showed up um, that before we were open, there wouldn't be an issue, right? Everybody in the community, if you weren't aware that it was closed. So really kind of thinking uh, very proactively to make sure we had the right resources. Um, it took us a little while, New York. I think we were the second one to open a freestanding ED in New York State. So getting the certifications and all those pieces um, take time. So we actually opened it first as a freestanding urgent care with the intent knowing we were gonna to flip to an emergency department once we had all the um, processes taken care of and paperwork in place. And we'll think that made it a little bit easier. It gave a little bit of time for the staff to get used to the flow and you know those, those pieces. So, um, and also the training was, was helpful. But um, when I went to Northwell, they had just opened up when it, I believe it was the first freestanding ED in Greenwich Village. So they, they beat us up state by just a little bit. And, um, and they opened as an ED. They never opened as an urgent care. So I think you could go either way. And they used their, their time waiting just to do uh, staff training and development. How many different hospitals did you have in the area that you, you guys were triaging or, or sending referring patients to? You know, let's, you know, a patient came to the ED with acute appendicitis. How did you determine where you were going to send that patient from there? We sent it to to the main hospital to our parent organization. It was okay. like a spoken hub. So you just had, you just had one one parent. Oh, okay, you okay? Yeah. No, I got you. Yeah. 
Gotcha. So that kept it simple. Um, our backup was really clear. Uh, having a having having knowing knowing who you were going to call in an emergency for backup was very straightforward. You know, we were talking earlier about um, you know when y'all were putting in the electronic new health uh, record system, you were kind of rediscovering that your underlying processes maybe were not as as flushed out as you had expected. Um, and you know, it really is a great opportunity for you to. For everyone who ever goes through this exercise, um, unfortunately, all of us have done it more than once. Is to to kind of understand that you don't really know how your work works uh, until you break it down at that that individual level, and you have to make those those workflow decisions. Um, can you give us some examples of, I guess, how y'all went about, um, you know? making decisions as a group um, about it, you know, new workflows, new nursing workflows, new new workflows that cross multiple um, groups. So, you know, you would have nursing workflows that cross into pharmacy, that crossed into uh, physician provider workflows. You know, what sort of kind of governance and what sort of structure did y'all have to uh, look at that work and, and determine what was going to be all standard? Sure. Um, so I think when we were building it, we actually, we, we had, we had regularly scheduled meetings where everyone came together, but mostly nursing built their sections, physicians built their sections, lab and, and pharmacy and under lab is, is uh, blood bank as well. And those are probably in my mind, the biggest components that are interrelated, interrelated, but still different. And some of the workflows that we've had the greatest challenges on are some of them where they were built a little, probably too much in isolation. So we have really restructured um, a couple of times since our go live and how do we address the things that need to be addressed to be able to be efficient and make sure the key stakeholders are, are on the table. So um, I'll use nursing, for example, the, the nursing informaticists were reporting through one person and um, that was great, except it almost was like a game of telephone. So it goes through one person and then it come kind of full circle in a couple of meetings. And then by the time it circled back to the key stakeholders, when we were all together, we didn't have the people that had the knowledge of what the issue was. So kind of felt a little bit like round robin and we weren't moving very fast and making some decisions on things that needed to move forward. So um, I actually flattened that. I have the informaticists are actually with, with our current state, they're directly reporting to me. And we do a two hour nurse exec meeting one day a week and it's just clinical issues. So it's whether it's documentation or any, anything that the nurse informaticist has bubbled up to them or the leaders have heard. Um, and so we really have a plan there so that a decision is made. And then that actually goes back to, we do another hour long meeting later in the week. It's a much broader group. It's our reporting group, pharmacy group, um, lab can join us if it's a lab issue where we kind of talk about how that's interrelated. And then on Friday mornings, we do uh, a general governance meeting and it's our chief medical officer, myself, our chief information health officer, um, and then our key, key counterparts at Cerner. And we talk about what's kind of bubbled up, what's moving forward. It's where we get agreement. Yes, it moves forward. And it has really helped in the last two months start moving some things along because we just when you have too many people involved and, and it's disparate, then we had no decisions made and it was put, put off until the next week. And I think that was really frustrating for the informaticists. They knew what the issues were. They knew pretty much the direction to go, but they didn't have the approval to do it. So that's worked out and is working out better than what we were doing before. 
No, that's great. You know, I love your piece when you're talking about the silos and the frustrations that those could cause. What I've always seen is that if you were having a meeting discussing a workflow that was shared by nursing uh, physicians and maybe quality, because those all touch each other some. If it, if the only people that show up to the meeting are nursing, they're going to put all of the check boxes on the physician side and, and have them, you know, their workflow just, you know, as easy as possible, or the physicians have to wade through all the check boxes. And if, if, if only the physicians are there, well, we're just going to send that all over to nursing and, uh, you know, let them deal with it. And same with quality, they'll just put everything on, on everybody else. But it looks like, you know, y'all figured it out that you got to get everybody in the same room to, to kind of wade through a lot of those issues. Yeah, I like to think that we all play done. pretty nicely. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that can happen. Us interns, we just put everything else on the surgeons is what we like to do. Yeah. Huh. Oh, let me ask you uh, one more question out of curiosity. I know we're kind of coming near the end, but does, does your organization, do y'all have a way? I know some don't. I know some are experimenting with our organization. We have a mixture, but do you have a way to get ideas out of every single person on every single shift within your organization, do they have a way to? And I, I'm not talking about the wooden box with the with the lock on it. I don't I don't mean that. But I'm curious. Do do y'all have a way to be able to to share ideas to drive improvement? Um, not formal. I I don't think we I I wouldn't say we're very robust there. Uh, it's a great question. We actually were just talking today. We're going to have the nurse infor informaticists and our nursing leaders start doing deliberate rounds, making sure that they are um, attending our staff meetings and be more intentional. They've been so busy since our go live that that hasn't happened. But um, that is that was our topic on Tuesday. How do we bring the front line in because it's the voice they're, they're the customer, and how do we make sure the voice of the customer is heard so that we support their work? So that's that's one piece. I love your your idea um, and being very intentional. I was one of those people that just showed up at meetings, but not everyone can just show up at meetings. Um, and I think there's a ton of talent and experience and wonderful ideas. The solution is there. Most people doing the work know what they need to do the work, but it might not be communicated timely, or they may only remember it, you know, after their their shift is over. It may be long gone. So capturing that idea real time is important. Well, and we're doing the same thing. You know, we have a lot of opportunity for improvement, but I'm just always amazed when I sit down with uh, a nurse, with with a doctor, or with maybe a technologist, or someone that maybe isn't very uh, vocal, but you sit down with them and you get to know them, and before you know it, they have some amazing ideas, but they never had the platform or never felt the that they had the opportunity to really share those ideas. And so I, I was just curious because you, you can tell there's a lot of energy and excitement at your organization. Well, Paul, I wanna tell you how thankful I am that you came. Uh, you were highly recommended for us to talk to because of your national leadership and, and the great work you've done. And I just wanna say on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much for spending a little time with us telling us the really good uh, the work you're doing, and, and we hope hopefully you'll come back again someday. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was certainly a pleasure. Thank you, Paula. Thanks, Paula.